It's been a while since I've preached and Cameron's actually been here, so we'll see how it goes. It'll be good. You're usually quiet. Okay, that's good. Well, let's pray as we, um, as we receive God's word this morning. And uh, we just want ears to hear what he's saying to us this morning as a church. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you want to say to us today. And we just pray that you would allow us to receive it. Give us ears to hear what you're saying, Father. I just pray that it would be just a great time focused on you this morning, Father. That we would continue in our worship as we submit ourselves to your word this morning. In your name we ask it. Amen. Well, um, last week we started um, thinking about three things. There was creation, fall, and redemption. And it was kind of a framework that we had for understanding kind of the bigger picture of life and kind of like zooming back and kind of thinking about the bigger picture. So if you remember, I had you kind of picture like the earth hanging in space and like that kind of big picture where we're kind of looking at the whole of creation and the whole of what God has done. And then we started talking about um, how God has created all things. And we looked at how there's kind of debate about how things were created you know, intelligent design, creationism, evolution. But we kind of steered clear of that and focused on the fact that God has created both the physical creation, you know, our human bodies. He's created plants and trees and animals and fish, and we're pretty familiar with that. But God has also created structure for things to happen. So he's created ways for family units to be ordained. He's created ways for business, for education, for all different things to happen in this life. And he created us in his image. And uh, there was the idea that we, we looked at that God directly created for those six days. He rested on the seventh. And then he kind of withdrew from directly creating. Now, he didn't withdraw entirely in terms of relationship. But he kind of stopped creating. And he left his image on the earth in his place. And his image is us, is humanity. And when he created the world, he created it. It was fully complete, but it was, it was also kind of empty. And we were given that, that mandate, that charge as, as humanity to go out and to fill the earth, to multiply, to have dominion over the earth. And you see within a very short space of time in the Bible, in Genesis 4, that um, cultural things are happening. People are finding cities. People are being artistic. People are being skilled in all sorts of different things. And you see the development of culture. And that's a really good thing, and that's what we were made for, to develop, to grow, to fill the earth. And then we finished up last week looking at how, um, because of the fall, because of sin and evil entering the world, all of that got corrupted. All of that got corrupted, and so how we understand both ourselves, how we understand God, and how we understand kind of culture and all the different things that our lives are engaged with, all of that got totally corrupted. And um, made the point that any time you try to rationalize or justify sin and evil in the world, you're already going down a dead end because there's no, there's no redeeming quality to it. There's nothing that can be said about sin and evil that gives it any sense of justice or any sense of truth. And it's a, just a completely irrational thing. And it's not what our universe, what our world was created to hold. And um, all of creation was good. So that's just a little kind of overview of what we talked about last week. So this week we get to the really exciting part. All of that was just a setup for this week. Okay? And this week is the exciting part because we're looking at redemption. And that word means to, to fully restore 
or to buy back. Okay, if you redeem something like a coupon, you get the worth of that back. You get you get that back, and so it's full restoration is kind of the key that I want you to think about this morning. And so what I want to do is kind of talk about how God is fully restoring both us, but he's also fully restoring every part of creation. So do you remember how we talked about God created absolutely everything? You know, the things that we see physically, but also kind of structures of how life is to be planned and purposed. So, you know, it's in God's will that family units exist and and people have business and people are educated and people, there's a justice system. All of those things are good and necessary and they're part of God's plan. They're not outside of God's plan. And in fact, he has ways that he would like to see those things done. So... That's kind of that's kind of what we're going to talk about. And today it's going to be redemption, but also our future hope. And it's understanding how do we fit in to this whole scheme of life, kind of from a bigger picture. And if we understand the big, big picture of what God is doing, it helps us understand how we fit into that, right? And so if we're just focused on ourselves as individuals, like what's my plan in life, what's my role in life, but we don't understand what God is doing as a whole then we're going to miss out on some of the stuff that God is involved in. Does that make sense? So we want to see what's God doing with all of history and then understand where we fit into that plan. Does that make sense? So we want to do that. And it's, it's really good because I think some of the things that God is doing, we may not even really consider on a day-to-day basis. But the first thing to say is that um, the outlook that we have as Christians is one that is absolutely full of hope and is guaranteed of to be full of hope. You know, it's a guaranteed hopeful future. So whatever perspective we have right now about whatever's going on in our lives, the final perspective is one of hope. And just as we looked at the fact that sin absolutely came in and corrupted and destroyed so many things, whatever depth um, sin has has come into to this world, into our lives, that's the depth to which God's restoration will come. Okay, so there's no place that sin has seeped into this created world, whether physically or in our lives, emotionally, whatever category you think about in life that's been corrupted by sin, that is an area of life that God wants to fully redeem and restore and ultimately will fully redeem and restore. So if you think about, wow, government seems like, wow, there's a lot of corruption in government. There's a lot of corruption in business, and we're finding out about that, right? People like Bernie Madoff, wow, that, you know, that's, that just, there's a lot of corruption there and a lot that wasn't good. And God wants to go right to the heart of what it is to bring redemption and restoration to those areas of life. You know, it should be right that you should invest money with somebody and they don't swindle you out of it, right? And so how do we, how do we get engaged in seeing that the restoration of God's values come into those areas of life? Um, so God wants to bring full redemption, full restoration to every part of life to every single structure. Paul talks about this in Romans 12, verse 2. You know, he used that phrase, the renewing of your mind. And so that's just one snapshot of what God wants to do. So as our minds are renewed in God, so God wants to renew all things in creation. Okay, and sometimes God uses what's going on in our lives as a picture of what's going on for what his plans and purposes are for the whole of creation. So God wants to see our minds renewed according to his will. He wants to see the whole of the world renewed according to his will. So one thing that's really important to remember early on is that sometimes you may have heard this growing up, and I know I did, but you may have heard that the world is evil. Like not just the stuff that goes on in the world, 
but that this earth is just inherently evil. It's just kind of a bad place to be. Has anybody ever heard that? Yeah. The problem with that statement is it's not supported anywhere in the Bible. <clears throat> so if you want to hold on to it, that's fine. But just know that the Bible is not on your side on this one. And so, so why is that? Like, how can you say that? Well, when God created, he made everything good, right? And that was before sin entered the world. Okay, so God's already declared this, this earth good before any corruption. And time and time again, we see that God declares the goodness of creation. And ultimately, the very fact that Christ came to earth validates the goodness of earth. The very fact that Christ came to earth validates the goodness of this earth. So if you, if you, if you retain in your mind this morning the earth is evil and bad and corrupt, then you're going to miss pretty much the rest of what I'm going to say. So that's just a warning. So we must view the world positively. And there cannot be a division between what is sacred and what is secular. Okay, and I know like a lot of us have heard this stuff before, but the reason it's so important is because it just is so biblically in tune. And actually one of the distinctives about Christianity is it actually values this earth very, very highly. It actually values this earth very, very highly. Um, all other religions pretty much do not view this earth as a loving place that God created or their gods created. Usually it was created in some kind of turmoil. It wasn't a loving and peaceful act. And it's not a place that is good. Christianity views it very differently. So, with all of this redemption going on, all of this God wanting to restore, like, where are we headed? Like, what's the end point of this restoring process? You know, where are we headed? So I want to talk about kind of where, <clears throat> where the world in general is headed and then talk about where we're headed as part of that, okay? So let's think about where the world is headed. Absolutely every single thing that we're going to think about this morning hinges on the fact that Christ has risen from the dead. And we're going to see why that's important. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about this. And um, this is a the most famous passage about the resurrection and why it's important. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 14, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So if you, if you maintain that your personal faith in Christ has any meaning and value and merit, you must believe in the resurrection of Christ, because that's what it hinges on. Now, we often talk about the cross, and we're not downplaying the role of the cross, but we very rarely talk about the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection. So this is just one way to kind of redress the balance a little bit. So resurrection means more than simply a reawakening. Okay? So it's not enough to say that for us and for Christ, the resurrection simply means that after death, life goes on. Okay? It's not enough to say that um, we die or Christ died and was resurrected in the sense of he was asleep for a little while and then he kind of just was awake again. Okay? It's, it's not really enough to say that. And what we must instead understand is that resurrection means there was an absolute death and then there was a period where death had its say. 
okay, and death, and death reigned. So in Christ's example, you see that because he died and he wasn't raised until the third day. And there was that space where death seemed to have the final say, right? And so, you know, in the Easter tradition, that's called Holy Saturday, and people try to come up with ways to commemorate Holy Saturday. And it's funny because there's Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday, and there's, there's just like no record of, of, there's just silence about Saturday. And that's deliberate in the Bible because it seems like death has had the final say, and there's silence. But the great thing about resurrection is it's a complete and total restoration of everything about that person or that thing. So Christ did die. He completely died. And people have tried to say, well, the resurrection, I don't know, is that a real fact? Did it really happen? Science, you know, people don't raise from the dead. Okay, the fact that we know that people generally don't raised from the dead isn't a new thing. When Paul preached in Athens in Acts 17, people knew that people didn't raise from the dead. Okay, And that was the thing, if you read that account in Acts 17, Paul, they're like, yeah, that's a good idea. I like what you're saying. I like what you're saying. And then Paul says about the resurrection of the dead. And then they said, oh, too much. You're out of your mind. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's how that flows. So people have been skeptical about it. But as Christians, we need to really hold on to the fact that resurrection is a real thing. Because if we don't, then if you take that piece out, it seems like a small piece to take out at the time, but then everything else will just fall apart if you take that out. And so, basically, resurrection is the complete and total renewing and restoration of what has, what has died. Okay? So the idea is of a new thing. There's something that is completely new that is done. Have you ever noticed that Christ is called the firstborn of overall creation? Colossians 1.15. He is the first piece of evidence, and he's also the decisive piece of evidence that our future hope has been won. You see, if Christ has been resurrected, then it's absolutely certain that we will be resurrected because we're in him. So that doesn't mean that we don't die. We know that's a fact, right? But because Christ has been resurrected, we know that we'll be resurrected. And it'll be more than just a, oh, I was asleep for a few moments, now I'm, now I'm awake. We're going to see that there's a period of time where it seems like death has the final say, but really it doesn't. Um, you know, what does that mean for this world? Should we be pessimistic about the world or should we be optimistic about the world? Optimistic. Yeah, we should be optimistic about the world, or should we? Because for things to be uh, completely restored, they have to die. You see, if, if, if there's not death, then there can't be resurrection. So if that's the fact, then, then should we, you know, if people say to you, should we be optimistic or pessimistic about the world? When I think about the progress of society, should I be optimistic or pessimistic? What should the answer be? Not sure. Well, the answer is Christ is risen. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. You know, you know, I'm both optimistic and pessimistic. I don't like this current world's chances as it is, you know, because it's not going to last. But I'm incredibly optimistic about the future because all things are going to be restored. 
you know, we fall into two, one of two traps really easily. Number one is, and we hear this all the time, the world is progressing. We are moving forward to a bright new future. Have you ever heard somebody talk like that? Mostly you'll hear, uh, mostly you'll hear politicians talk like this. Okay, now this was a mindset of the modernist movement and the modernist way. And, and you know, we, we're postmodern. Okay, whether you like it or not, you're, you're a postmodernist, which means that you don't believe this at all. And basically, the only people that believe this are politicians. So, so basically, when people get up and they say, vote for me, the world will change. And we get this like all the time when, when politicians are like, vote for me, right? I'm going to change the world. And we're all like, uh, I think we've all moved on. I think we know we won't change the world together as humans. So we can improve things, but really, there's not going to be such a radical change as you may, may imagine. Right? And you kind of feel that skepticism when you hear people make these grand claims. Right? Have you ever felt that kind of like, eh, I'm not sure? You know? Well, that's because we're all skeptical postmodernists, and we've all given up on that idea, that idea a few decades ago. Um, the other idea that you might heard, and I heard this growing up in my church, is that the world is completely evil and doomed. So it's the opposite. So instead of the world is progressing, it's in a downward spiral. So what should we do? We shouldn't engage with the world. We should retreat from the world um, and try to be as holy as possible and kind of withdraw. Did anybody ever hear that or come across that? Yeah, some churches say we need to avoid all contact with the world, but um, that really just isn't true, as we're going to see. Um, you may, at this point, have a question in your mind. Yeah, but it doesn't... Doesn't the world not get restored? Doesn't it get completely destroyed? Isn't there a passage in the Bible that talks about like everything burning? Like That's the picture I have in my mind. Doesn't the world get kind of burned up and as part of the end times? Well, that's true. There's a fire that is going to come. But it's a little bit like what we sang today, fire fall down. It's a refining fire as opposed to a completely destroying fire. And so there's a very real sense in which this earth is going to be completely renewed, yes. not that this earth is going to be completely destroyed. And that's really important for us to remember. So where do we personally fit into this picture, and what does the future hold for us? So this section of my sermon, I'm really glad Cameron is back, because I ran this, what I'm going to say next, I, I ran by him a few weeks ago before he left, and he said he would be here to answer any questions. So this is really... <laughs> that's even better. So we're going to talk about like the future, like where we're personally headed as individual Christians. And, um, and this is kind of like, I heard a great analogy of what this is like, is we know some things, but there's a lot we don't know. So it's kind of like we're looking at signposts pointing to the fog. Okay. So we know that it, like we're headed in the right direction, but we're not really exactly sure what it's going to look like, but we do know enough that we can have a sure and certain hope. So... You're, you're a Christian, you're in church, you believe in, you lo in Jesus, you love him. What's going to happen to you after you die? Answers on a postcard. Oh, you can tell me right now. Any ideas? Everyone's nervous now because they're like, I don't know what I believe anymore. <laughs> we'll be with Jesus. Where, where will we be with Jesus? Spirit. Okay, that's good. Any, any additions to that? Hmm, nobody's sure anymore. All right. Well, I'm going to suggest that when we die as Christians, we go to heaven. Have anybody ever heard that before? <laughs> Have you ever witnessed anybody and said, when we die, we go to heaven? Anybody heard of heaven? So, okay. 
So, so often that's the picture, right? And, and the world kind of parodies, like, you know, heaven is like we're all floating on clouds and playing harps. Have you ever, ever seen that or heard that picture? You know, some people even say we become angels, you know, things like that. You know, the idea is that we kind of are just, just there in God's presence. You know, when I was growing up in church, um, the picture of heaven was just one continual church service where we'd all just be singing to Jesus forever. Anybody ever hear that? Yeah. Does that sound like fun to anybody? I mean, I was like, oh man, that sounds rough. So. And the reason that that just doesn't, doesn't feel right is because it isn't right. So, um, you know, you just won't find in the New Testament that when we die, we go to heaven forever. Okay? So, if you've always believed that you'll die and go to heaven forever, we're just going to tweak that slightly and make it better. Okay? And make it better. There's an optimistic statement, if ever. There was a... Okay, so if that's not quite true, where did the idea of heaven come from? Actually, if you believe that, you actually are a great follower of a Greek philosopher called Plato rather than Christ. So, it's, it's this, I mean, so basically what he said was, everything that is material is evil, everything that is spirit is good. So you can see why Christians over the centuries just kind of drew this into their faith. It was really easy to do, that when we die, we go to heaven, and so we kind of get rid of all of the material. Because that would be the best thing to happen to you, right? Because that was their worldview. And so, kind of over the years, that's what it's become. The bottom line is, though, that when, when we die, we do go to be with Christ in his presence. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And we know that God, God's presence is heaven. That's where it's most fully realized, is in heaven. And if we were all to die today, we would go to be with Christ in heaven. So I'm not saying that doesn't happen. The thing is, you would not have your, your body with you. You would be a spirit. Your soul would be there. Okay? And, and it's the same for every believer who has died. So there is complete peace in that place. There's complete joy. There's complete freedom. Freedom from sin, sickness, tears, all of those things you read about. That is the reality of heaven. That's the reality of every believer that's died. However, there's also a part of them that is absolutely longing and yearning to be reunited with their body in the great and final resurrection. Because there's a great and final resurrection that's going to happen. And do you know where it's going to happen? On the earth. Wow. How do we know that? Well, Revelation 21, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, comes from heaven to earth. And God always comes from heaven to earth. There's this great chasm that is fixed between us and God where we're completely different than he is. And we can never ascend to get to where God is. God always has to come to us. So you see that in creation. God came down to walk in the cool of the garden. You see that with Moses. God came down to the mountaintop to give the law. You see that with the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament where God came down to visit that. You see it also in Christ. You see it as he gives us the Holy Spirit. And you see it ultimately when the new Jerusalem comes to earth. The earth that is completely restored and renewed. Does that make sense? This idea... And you might say in your mind, I thought we all flew up to heaven to meet Jesus. Has anybody ever had that idea before? Has anybody ever read the Left Behind series? This will sound very familiar. (laughs) 
So anyway, um, it does talk about Christ, us meeting Christ in the air. First Thessalonians four. The thing about that is the, fir- the the word that Paul uses is parousia, and this word is used frequently when it comes to Christ's second coming, the return of Christ to this earth. Parousia actually meant was always used in the context culturally in the New Testament days of a royal visit. So if Caesar was, if we were Caesar's subjects right now, and Caesar was going to come and visit Kalamazoo, that visit would be a parousia. Okay, everybody got that. And instead, and what would happen is you would know about that in advance. Caesar is coming, Jesus is coming, and. Um, what would happen is, if you knew that Caesar was going to fly to Kalamazoo Airport and he was going to land, you wouldn't just let him land unannounced. You would go and send people ahead to kind of go and to make sure that he was welcomed. This would happen in the, in the New Testament world. People would go several miles outside the city to welcome Caesar as they went back into the city. So meeting Christ in the clouds is a picture of us going to meet Jesus who's coming on a royal visit, a parousia, and then together we'll come back to earth because we've welcomed him. So we don't keep going up. Christ is coming down and we meet him. That's the language of 1 Corinthians 4. Whew. Aren't we citizens of heaven though? Hmm. Don't we, don't we live in heaven as citizens? Well, citizenship is not the same as residency. All right? I'm, not, I'm not a U.S. citizen, but I've been living here for a long time. It has more to do with your um, your allegiance, and it has more to do with your identity. So we're citizens of heaven in the sense of we have allegiance to heaven and to the kingdom of God, and that's our identity. It does not necessarily mean we live in heaven. What about John 14? Aren't there rooms that are prepared for us to go and live in in heaven? Well, the word that was used for rooms there really means like a rest stop. It's not like a final place that you live. It's not like a home and so basically, it's, it's that idea. If, if we died and we went to heaven, there would be a place for us that was prepared. But it's not forever. It's until that great resurrection of our bodies that happens on the earth. Um, when Jesus comes, what's going to happen? He's going to judge the earth. There's this great scene in Daniel chapter 7. You ever realize why Jesus called himself the Son of Man? It's because he's referring back to Daniel. Everybody in his day would have known what he was talking about. In Daniel 7, all of the nations are depicted as huge monsters, and they are um, just railing against Israel, which is depicted in the form of one as a son of man. Okay, so Israel is like little defenseless, the form of a son of man. The nations are huge monsters, just, just cursing it, just going right after them. And God is the judge, and he is called the Ancient of Days. And he comes in, there's this great thing where, scene where he, God comes in, he just proceeds in, and there's great glory, great majesty. Thousands upon thousands wait upon him. And he hears the case like a great judge. And there's Israel, little defenseless, all of the nations reeling on it. God rules in favor of the Son of Man, and then says, Son of Man, all authority has been given to you over the nations. Now you can see whenever you know, Christ was the Son of Man, people would have thought of that scene immediately. And that's why they had such high expectations. Oh, he's going to overturn the Romans. But it's greater than that. It's so much greater than that. In fact, every single thing has been given over to him. All dominion and authority has been given to him. Does that remind you of anything? It reminds you of Genesis 1. We were given dominion. Christ restores us to that place of dominion over the earth because we are in him and all authority has been given to him. 
And you see, Adam was given a law, just like Moses was given a law. Adam's law was to rule and multiply over the earth. Moses' law was to train us in righteousness and to know what sin was. Christ makes both laws infinitely better, but doesn't cancel either one out. And so we still have this mandate to completely um, see that um, the creation, the world, is ruled over. I know this is a lot, so if you catch some of it, that's fine. But I want you to get a sense if there's a big picture. So what's our ultimate destination? Right here, this earth. Jill was wondering today if the roads would be better on the new earth. (laughs) You know, we have this great task that we are going to be equipped to do with God on the new earth. You know, we are not going to be inactive. And who knows, God may create a whole new universe and we'll get to help, help him run it. Who knows? It's a signpost pointing to the fog. We just don't know for sure. But there are great, great things that lie ahead of us on this new earth that is completely free from sin, completely free from all sickness, despair. We will be fully equipped and fully inclined to do God's work and it will be absolutely joyous. And so the question for us right now is not to think about... Often we get like... Who will be saved? What individual Christians will be saved? And how will that happen? You know, often we we think about that. I'm just going to finish with this question. Often we think about, as individuals, who will be saved and how will they be saved? Have you ever thought about that? The question, perhaps, should be, how will God's new creation come? How will God's new creation come? You see, let's use an Old Testament example. The people of Israel were God's chosen people, right? Their whole destiny, their whole identity was, how is, how is God going to save us, Israel? And when Christ came, he said, actually, it's bigger than just you. He said, it's for the whole world. It's for all of the Gentiles. He said, I'm going to use you to reach all the Gentiles. You will be restored as part of that. It's the same for us. It's bigger than just us. This restoration is bigger than just us. How will this new restoration come? We will be part of it. We will get swept into this restoration as part of God's whole plan for the whole of creation. And so the question is, what is our part to see this restoration come in? What is our part to see this happen now because we don't have to wait? It'll be fully completed on that final day of resurrection. But what is our part now to help usher in the kingdom of God? Amen. Thank you, Graham. That was great. I feel like some clarity coming to my brain this morning. It's awesome. I'd like to welcome any guests that are here with us today. If you are a guest, please fill out the connection card that's attached to your bulletin and bring it to the connection counter in the back of the service today because we would like to bless you with a gift. And thank you for coming. All right, I have a number of announcements. Uh, One is that we are about to take an offering. And today is Chloe, Nick, and Ray's last day with us. Um, They're all going to to different locations, but Chloe is going to the Supernatural School of Ministry in Redding, California, and we would like to help her schooling costs. I think they're around 3,000 or so. Is that right, Chloe? 
I'm not sure. They're, they're high, and, you know, she's got a chunk of it covered, but she needs a little bit more. So we'd really like to bless her, just as her church family, and we're going to take an offering in a little bit. And if you would like to give um, to help raise funds for Chloe's schooling, you can just put it on the um, offering envelope, just indicate exactly how much, and just her name where it says,